Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour. To be a part of the program, it is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624. Send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening from underneath the snow piles here in South Dakota. Yeah, you got a lot of snow. You're buried now? Yeah, we got successive uh, days of a decent amount of snow. We, I think we got eight or nine inches, and then that it, long, it cleared long enough for us to go all go out there and, and plow stuff, and then we got another four or five inches. Do you like fighting for your survival? Like In the, in the north, I do. I, I'd answer differently in the south, I think. I see. All right, well, I, I'm happy that you're still among us. Don't get buried in snow, and um, thank God you have solar. I mean, as long as it's clear, yeah. then you don't have to go anywhere. Got everything you yep. need right there at the house. Except uh, answers to questions. No, we got those. We got those too. Those are part of the feedback segment. Your feedback goes to the front of the line, 855-450-855-450-6624, or the email live at asknoahshow.com. Our first email from Anthony writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I love the show. My question today has to do with password sharing. What's the best way to share a password when a user doesn't have a password manager? I don't want them to write the password down, and I don't want it in plain text in an email. Is there a service or a self-hosted solution where I can have the user just visit and write their password, and then have it erased immediately or close it when viewed? I don't need usernames or extra information. I just need a secure way to store text temporarily, viewable by myself. Use cases for setting up user profiles on new laptops where the user is not present. Much appreciated. So, Steve, I feel like this question has come in once or twice before. I think we have a different answer every time we uh, we end up having this question. Okay, so to recap, we've said things like use a self-hosted service, use Nextcloud, uh, use an encrypted text, you know, shared uh, editor thing. I think I've probably at some point mentioned using encrypted messaging like Element or Signal, something that will encrypt the message. So that, that's one thing you can do. I can't remember if I've said this on the air or if if it's just something that I, I encounter, one of the things that I see all the time, and I see it from hospitals, and we're talking big name hospitals, names that you would recognize, um, large places, places that deal, law office, places that deal with sensitive information, it's very common to send most of the stuff one method and one thing by the other method. So, for example, they'll say, here's your domain password, and they'll text that to the user, and then all the rest of the stuff will come in via email. And then they read the email, and then the one thing that they do, and of course, the first time they sign into the domain, they have to change it, um, and they set policies. Sometimes I'll, I'll see it to where you've got, you know, four hours to get logged in to, to change your password and stuff. So you can do things like that. Is it a perfect solution? No, it's not a perfect solution. Is some sort of encrypted text sharing better? Yes, it is. Am I missing anything from the past that we've covered? Or do you have something new this time that you're like, hey, you know what? This is what I'm doing nowadays. You know what? I lean heavily on Nextcloud for a lot of that type of stuff. So I would fall back on the old tried and trusted. 
Here's the thing I like about that, Steve. It's on something you own, right? So, like, if you send me a thing, I just have to trust Steve Ovens. And if I trust Steve Ovens, then the platform says the problem with typical cloud services, like the problem with the text message example that I just gave. So your cell phone has a copy of it. Your cell phone's provider has a copy of it. Their cell phone provider says a copy of it. Their cell phone has a copy of it. Anybody who walked by their desk or grabbed a hold of their phone has a copy of it. Anybody that saw your, you see what I mean? I mean, it just, anybody who had access to their laptop and they were signed into iMessage and the messages integrated. There's so many different vectors to get to compromise that it's problematic. Steve's what's your vector for compromise? If somebody pops your own next cloud server? Yeah, well, I guess it depends on if I'm doing that sort of stuff, those uh those links and stuff like that disappear pretty quickly. Mm. So you leave them up long enough to get the process done then you take it down. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you've still breached the file server th via Nextcloud, I suppose You'd have to anything that's super sensitive, like documents, like, I don't know, identification or anything that could be used for doing nefarious things online. Those are those get GPG encrypted once they've been processed. So you, you could absolutely go grab the GPG copy of some of that stuff. I'm not sure how good it would do you, but you could do that. But yeah, I'd say Nextcloud is my attack vector. Here's one other thing I'll throw out. Just in the spirit of every time we do this, we give you a different answer. I really, really, really like passphrases. Passphrases are fantastic because they're easy for humans to remember and they're difficult for computers to guess. And so if it's one thing to say, what's my password? Okay, it's going to be capital N as in Nancy, capital L as in Lima, lowercase b as in bro. I mean, it's ridiculous. What's an ampersand? You know, the thing that I don't shift seven. No, don't don't go down that road. Passphrases are nice because you can say corporal dash starved dash eating. What's that mean? Don't know. But you know how to spell corporal. You know how to spell starved. You know how to spell eating, right? Yes. Great. Awesome. Type it in. And that's your pass. So there it can be an easy way that you can jump on a phone call and say, hey, sign in. OK, you get in. Good. Great. Now go up here. Click on this settings profile, set password and then change it to something else. And now you've got something unique in whatever process they're going and likely if they're not using a password manager, the conversation that we have, because there's kind of a fork there, either we're going to give you a passphrase and just tell you, here's your password, because what we found is even if they're writing it down on a sticky note, at least it's not the same password that's used for 15 other things and posted all over the Internet. So there's, you know, some advantage. <laughs> my my striking a nerve, Steve? No, I I just found that humorous. <laughs> I I know the the idea of writing things down. Though it's not usually a napkin, it's normally like a post-it note right. or something on the on the computer itself. Uh, computer screens, if that doesn't work, under the keyboard, if that doesn't work, look for the nearest drawer. If that doesn't work, look for the nearest cabinet. And there's I found a couple under mouse pads. But yeah, that's... I mean, I've I've heard of people doing it under the keyboard. I have not actually run into that. Maybe uh, maybe your time. people are a little more smart than oh. mine, but uh, the, the things I run into is like it's literally just somewhere out <laughs> in the open. Well, you wouldn't want to have to work too hard to get the password. Anyway, Anthony, <laughs> I hope that helps you. If it doesn't, write back in, live at com. Give us a little bit more uh, context, and hopefully we can help you with that. Our next email comes in from Dominic. Dominic writes in and says, Noah and Steve. Thanks for your tip about the used access cameras. I bought an Axis M3075-V for about 100 euros on eBay over here in Germany. I'm in love with the build quality and the features. The camera feels like a real professional equipment. Because it is. 
I would like to share my experience with other listeners as I waste, wasted in previous years too much time with cheap consumer cameras and proprietary systems like the Ubiquiti Unify UVC G3 Pro. What I like most and what others might consider as well, motion detection on device, reducing the server hardware requirements and ONVIF profile. Yeah, but I don't care about having it on device. You don't care now. Wait until you get to 15 cameras and all of a sudden it's missing motion because the NVR can't handle doing the detection. You know, you know, how, you know how far you can expand horizontally when you have every camera doing its own motion detection? Unlimited. It doesn't matter. Uh, that was me, not him, by the way. Max three power power consumption, according to the data sheet. I measured two watts, including the PoE power supply. Could run on its own without a server. Has a nice web interface. Plenty of notification options. MQTT, ONVIF, events, HTTP, TCP, SMTP, SNMP. Many storage options as well. SD card, SFTP, Samba, and HTTPS. One of the selling points that we use all the time when we, when we have a conversation about security and security posture and all those kinds of things is, What's your plan when somebody comes in and smashes the NVR and grabs it and runs? And now they have all the, all the footage that's on there. And they'll say, well, I mean, I, I'm not, you have a, like a cloud backup thing? Okay, yeah, we can do that. We'll sync all your footage off there. But here's another idea. Sometimes you'll get the savvy customer that'll say, yeah, I don't want to do anything cloud. I want it all secure. Great, awesome. So what you do is you take the access cameras, you put an SD card in them. Now, person would literally have to go to every single camera and guess what we're going to put two on the nvr so the one that's very obvious that they, they might see and might smash they might grab they might steal but probably not they probably just go after the nvr but even if they do here's the other one we put and then you know you can you can do some of that so those some of those features like they to put the idea or to kind of open up the imagination i guess to say yeah these are options but here's why they're really really cool his email concludes with, as a result, no need for proprietary software. Thanks for the great show and a great start to 2024. So, Steve, another access camera lover. I mean, they do the job. They do it well. And they stand behind their products as far as I can tell. I mean, you can't ask for much more than that. The first time I installed an access camera, I remember pulling it out of the box. And I remember thinking to myself, it was an M-series. And I remember pulling it out of the box and thinking to myself, like, I'm not, I don't really get it. Like, I don't really get like why this company is so fantastic. And then over time, what ended up happening was I ended up, we'd end up going to find cameras for all sorts of weird, like esoteric things. And we'd go to their site and like, sure enough, they make a camera for that. And it, it's the company, as you say, like their support, they release updates way longer. Like they'll discontinue the product. So they, it's not part of the product line anymore. They're phasing it out. And yet you still get software updates for like 10 years. So, I mean, they're just a really fantastic company. They cost significantly more than cheap Chinese cameras. They just do. And this is one of the things that clients don't tolerate well is, you know, we go in and say, hey, this is what we install. And I've gotten laughed at before. And they're like, you've got to be kidding me. I had competent cameras come as like $50. Cam well, go buy a $50 camera and you'll have a $50 camera. Anthony writes in and says, hi, Noah and Steve. First off, thanks so much for doing the show. You guys rock. I run a pie hole, an unbound DNS setup on my local network. We unavoidably have a few windows boxes and I've noticed that there are 20 K blocked requests every day, roughly one every four seconds coming from domains like self.events.data.microsoft.com and teams.event.data.microsoft.com mobile.events.data.microsoft.com. Are you catching a pattern here? These occur even when windows is on, but unused. I read online somewhere that these are Microsoft tracking and telemetry. 
And so I am loath to whitelist them. On the other hand, it seems like it creates unnecessary amount of DNS traffic. Any ideas about what I can or should be doing here? Keep up the great work, Anthony. So, Steve, I want to start with you because I guess let me ask this. Are Windows boxes allowed at your house? And if so, how do you deal with this? So I wouldn't worry about blocking them. So f- first of all, the question about, you know, if I block them, it is this going to cause unnecessary DNS churn? And because he says, you know, it seems like the, it creates an unnecessary amount of DNS traffic when, you know, uh, if if you whitelist them. Mm. You're going to have that DNS traffic anyways, that whether you're blocking them or not, mm-hmm. they're going like, to resolve the name. You're still going to have the same amount of traffic. So, I mean, that that's right off the hop that you're not going to change the amount of traffic that's happening. All that you will do is the amount that's going out to the Internet if you're blocking them or you're not. Uh, to answer your question, Noah, I have a single Windows VM for client work that Red Hat owns. It is a Red Hat VM that I only turn on for the exactly one client I've had in eight years where I couldn't do my work with Linux. So <laughs> that guy. Um, so I haven't turned it on in months. If I turned it on, I'd probably be waiting about five hours for it to run all the updates. So I don't have to really deal with this, to be honest. I have, so I just, I don't have, I, I won't allow a Windows box on the same network that all of the stuff I care about is on. Files, data, sensitive stuff. Uh, any of the traffic that's going over that network, I'll try and separate those things. I do have a guest network. I treat my guest network like a hostile network. So I I know that there's Windows boxes on there. I know that people bring all sorts of various manner of devices into my house and they, they just expect to have the internet. I do the best I can to separate it out. Past that, I don't really worry about it. Um, I would block it. What I would do is I would start by blocking it and then when there's some undesirable reason to have it blocked, then I would go and unblock it. If I saw those things coming through and I know, and I bothered to look and cared, I think I would block them. I tried doing this with some of Google stuff and it's, it was really eye opening. How many things stopped working when you stop block simple things like YouTube, you block YouTube. And all of a sudden, like half of my, my, uh, whatever the Android TV thing that, um, Nvidia shield, half of that thing just and stop working because it couldn't get to youtube.com. It's ridiculous. Like, I I don't ever want to use YouTube, but if youtube.com is blocked, it does all sorts of weird things. So just try it. Let us know. Our fourth email comes in from Muhammad. Oh, Atypical says, could also try some of the debloat scripts for Windows Online. So these are the things that attempt to try to strip out some of those telemetry. That's pretty cool. We'll see if we can find a a, uh, link and have it for you in the show notes podcast com. Our fourth email from Muhammad. Hi, Noah and Steve. I've been meaning to send this email for a while, but I keep forgetting and only remember when your episode is in my feed. I wanted to share how I block unwanted sites for my kids and benefit other listeners. It involves a few steps. So here's the thing. This is something that has come up time and time again. People write in, they say, how do I keep my kids safe? How do I keep my relatives safe? How do I keep on, how do I keep myself safe? I, I want don't want unsafe content or people prying into my content from my house. Hey, maybe we could even tie this and the last email together. So his process goes something like this. He got a five-year subscription from a service called Control D. You can learn more at controlD.com. In Control D, you can define a device with your desired settings. Then you can add the DOH provider to the block list, set up a DNS list, 
as the DNS forwarder, configure the DHCP to point devices to the DNS list, then configure NAT on the Microtech to redirect all UDP TCP DNS requests to DNS D list. Configure the firewall to block the known DOHIPs, and then he gives an example of Cloudflare and a couple other ones. This way, when a device tries to connect and look up the DOH provider, it gets blocked. And if it you and if it's one of the kids was tech savvy enough to know the IPs, they will also get blocked. You can replace the Control D DNS DNS dist with Pihole and Microtech with PSense and OpenSense. If you're a kid that manages to bypass that, I guess nothing would be able to block them. I love your show. It's very inspiring. Keep up the great work and have a wonderful new year. Hey, you too, Muhammad. Thanks for writing in. So, Steve, what do you think of Control D? Uh, you know what? I didn't really look into it. Uh, part of it because the description, uh, because there's a subscription to it. But mm. I feel like if the measures that I would take here to counter some of this stuff wouldn't stop them, then Control D is not going to stop them. Right. Because, yeah, that's fair. Because of grounding out, like I'm doing stuff like nulling out stuff, uh, IPs at, at the firewall, such as like Facebook and, and all that sort of stuff. And if you're going to bypass that by using a different DNS server, like there's a bunch of blocks that I have in, for those sorts of things. If you're getting by that, it means you're, you, you've figured out how to use a VPN or a proxy or something like that. And that means that anything that control D might do, unless it's literally running software on your system. No, there's no similar to. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, they're just, it's, it's there. It looks like it's just the DNS thing. Here's, here's what appeals about it to me, Steve. I like the fact that there's, it's an easy control point. It's an easy UI for people to get into. The plans are reasonable two bucks a month or 20 bucks a year. Um, Otherwise you can do what they call their full control, which, which redirects 300 plus services and adds a default rule. That's $4 a month or 40 bucks a year. If you're a parent and you're struggling to get like your head wrapped around or your head wrapped around, how do I do this? And maybe they don't have the time to go through and say, well, what are, what are Facebook's IPs? And then don't you have to keep that up to date? I mean, I would have to imagine places like Facebook are rotating that stuff constantly. Domains, Um, new. It it has been, it has been enough that it's, it's, has worked just fine because hmm. well, it's not just it's not just the ip blocking it's also uh nulling out the dns right so i'm sending the dns into basic basically a black hole so um on top of blocking the ips i'm also you know preventing the the resolution of the of the domain yeah yeah we're kind of getting there the i guess slightly different ways yours is the is the manual way so i suppose you don't be really neat be really neat to, to write up a guide of sorts that says like, here's the, you know, the, the hand step way of, you know, here's the providers that, you know, are, are potentially problematic or are a problem for kids or whatever, and kind of write that up. And then you could kind of copy and paste and say, okay, well, yeah, you know, here's what I'm looking for. But I, I don't know. I, I dig the idea where they have some of the things, some of the competitive features that you would have with the, you know, managed providers and managed internet and those sorts of things. You can cherry pick some of those features and integrate them with open source tools. I like that that is an option. And so maybe that's the right answer for you. Maybe just crawling in and doing it by hand is probably the more universal way. By the way, Tiny in 
the Geek Lab, you can learn more at geeklab.ninja says for the user calling about password reuse, they could use SSO as much as possible. There are multiple tools for self-hosting or it's included in Microsoft Office 365 and Google. Tiny from the Geek Lab says, how long does it take for Z-Wave devices to show up at Home Assistant for you folks? Whenever I add a new device, it seems like it takes days before it powers up correctly for me due to poor location. Are there any logs I could look at? Thanks in advance for the help. Steve, what would you do if you were waiting for a Z-Wave device to power up and how long do you... Does it take before you expect to see it? Uh, so it normally shows up fairly quickly. the The longer period of time is normally the interrogation for um, your controller to figure out what capabilities are on the Z Wave device. So normally, I see like, "Hey, found a device," and then the interrogation part takes some amount of time, and that would depend upon the security settings of the device and the controller, as well as how quickly things are responding and all of that. In terms of uh, having it slow to to respond, because the interrogation takes quite a while, if it is at all possible, you might consider doing the pairing closer to your controller than doing it further away. You might also control like consider doing something like pairing it to the device that. If if you have the ability, like if you've got a router and you can specify which router it's going to pair to, mm. then you might consider that. But ultimately, the most successful has been pairing the device to the the controller in close proximity to it, so that 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 interrogation process has completed. Because there's there is a lot of traffic that happens during the interrogation, and then you move it to wherever it needs to go. Sometimes that's not possible when it's something that you're literally wiring into the wall. Uh, but at that case, you know, that should that device should be hanging around fairly like a fairly long time. Like a battery device might go to sleep or um, kind of piecemeal out its interrogation information to say battery or whatever it is. So if, if you've got a device that you can move, bring it close let it finish doing that stuff and drop it somewhere else. I, I have done this repeatedly for things that I have put quite a ways away from the controller. And with Z-Wave, what it's supposed to do is on some sort of timer, I think it's like every 32 hours, it's supposed to look over the network and rebuild the network um, for optimal pathing. And as part of that process, it will realize that this thing is further away. So if you've moved it and it needs to hop through a different device to get back to a controller, it will figure that out. It's supposed to self-heal, uh, like I said, every day and a half or something like that. one 855 450 live at asknoahshow.com. JJ4884 in the Geek Lab at geeklab.ninja. Says, do you have a recommendation for Wi-Fi configuration video, and what settings to adjust for the best default system? The last video I saw that helped me was Padre from KnowHow and Twit. A lot has changed regarding Wi-Fi since then. So, I, I guess, Steve, do you have anything before I take a crack at this? I mean, this is something just like you punt the home automation. I tend to punt this at you. In fact, I code, I call up Noah. I'm like, no, I'm doing this thing. What do I need to do? So. <laughs> So Take he, it away, Noah. <laughs> here, here's the deal, right? So, like, for, the first thing I would tell you is don't do video over Wi-Fi. Um, I I understand that that's kind of a cop-out, so I'll, I'll give you the best answer I can. But really, if you can avoid it, 
don't do video over Wi-Fi. Run a wire. The best possible way you can move video is with what's known as SDI cable. SDI cable, quad-shielded coax, 50-ohm cable, or 75-ohm cable. You run it, and it's dirt cheap. It's, you know, maybe 40 cents a foot, 50 cents a foot, something like that. You put a BNC end on it, and you can you can deliver perfect video over a huge distance and embed up to 16 channels of audio. So if I had my option, that'd be the first thing I would do. If I couldn't do SDI, I would do NDI, which is network data video. If I can't do that, I would do something like, and then you kind of start to split RTMP and, and all the rest of it. As far as settings. So there's a couple different things that come into to play here. So let's talk about bandwidth first. If you don't have 1.5 megs of bandwidth, don't even try to do video. It's not going to work. It doesn't matter what you use. doesn't matter how you set it up. It's just, you're going to have problems. Just don't do it. You would need about three megs for standard definition video. You need about five megs for 1080p. You need about 25 megs for 4k. Okay. Past that, once you have the bandwidth established in the path. So I've got my, I've got my access point. I maybe have a, a dedicated SSID. So I'm sending my video over a dedicated VLAN or over a dedicated network. So I know that I have the required bandwidth that I need and that nobody's going to go downloading a YouTube video on that sort of thing. Right? So get that set up. Then the next thing is what do you actually set for the settings? So 1080p, if you're setting a bit rate of like one meg, a thousand kilobits per second, that's going to be, that's going to look good to most people. It's going to be bandwidth efficient. It's not going to be a hog. Um, if you, you know, you set the frame rate to about 30 frames per second, somebody full screens that bad mamma jamma on a, on a computer, it's going to look okay. Um, so that's, that's where I would start. And then I would kind of tweak from there as you need, as it starts to stutter, I would reduce the bit rate first as you start to see it, uh, de the, the, you know, degrade and, and start to, I don't want to say pixelate. Um, then I would start tweaking other things. And the more information you can give me, the more I would be happy to elaborate on that question. So Steve, I have a question for you, if that's okay. Sure. So I embarked on a really interesting project this, this past week. I might at, uh, at my morning show, I was asked by the general manager to put together a video broadcast system for the station so that they can broadcast video from the studio. And as I would do, as only I would do, uh, everything from top to bottom is open source. So We've got the box. It runs Ubuntu 2204. It has OBS on it. Inside of the box is a quad SDI capture card as well as a quad USB bus card. So we can put up to four USB cameras, each on their own separate USB bus. We can put uh, up to four different SDI cameras, each on their own, uh, each, each on their own separate connection. And that's it connected as a PCI card to the system. We've got a stream deck that comes up for a control point and then what the user sees or what the, the on-air talent sees is actually a custom view out of OBS that isn't the typical full screen projection, but it actually, what it does is it multiplexes all of the available shots at the bottom and then gives you a preview and a program. So you pick the shot up you want, it comes up in preview, you hit the take and it gives you a variety of different uh, transition effects that you can use. And then it, it takes that shot. We took all of that, we wrapped it into and streamed to Owncast, which is embedded at knoxradio.com slash live. And then we attached 
a matrix chat room so that anybody can participate instantly in in the broadcast, which is really great. So this open source thing, it's working flawlessly. Again, top to bottom, Linux and open source stuff, it's great. The issue now is reproducibility. So one of the things that we did when we put it together was we set Ansible up to recreate this box. And then for the things that are not easily Ansibleized, for example, the database for BitFocus Companion has to be, there's no easy way to say like import export. So you can, you have to either do that from the UI or you just take the database file. So we just did that. And, uh, you know, things like the scenes for OBS, there's assets. So all of this stuff has to get down to the box. None of it is sensitive. There's no like confidential or secret stuff in here. It's all, it's literally all stuff that's going to get broadcast on the open internet anyway. How would you build a custom broadcast appliance specifically designed for as a professional solution to be appliance like? So nobody wants to tweak with it. Nobody wants to do anything. But the idea would be that you take this box, you have a base, you know, operating system on it and you you run this playbook or you run the script that kicks off, installs Ansible and, and, and kicks off this playbook. But how would you deal with things like where to get the assets from and how to make that a seamless experience? So there's a couple of options that uh, I kind of was kicking around as you're talking. So the very first thing that I would do would be I would move those assets onto a web endpoint. So one of the things that we're worried about in this situation is a problem with this box because it's now mission critical, more or less. Like it's not going to stop the radio from happening, but once you are offering it as part of the radio service for this to go down is a pretty big black eye. So we're thinking about things like, how do I make sure I recover this quickly? If you've got a box and you got to run Ansible against it, that's fine. But there's a bunch of time that's involved with that, especially if there are things that are, let's say, a little bit janky in Ansible. Because mm. you, you can make Ansible do lots of things. And you can write your own custom modules, and that works fine. But there might be a better way. That's kind of like the idea... You know, the old adage, when you have a hammer, everything's a nail. That, yeah. That's kind of the way that this, this sounds like. So in this case, what you're saying is just because I can automate a tractor to go plow a field every time doesn't mean that we have to go plow the field every time we want to do something. There might be a shorter way to achieve my goal. Pretty much, right? So you're ultimately, it sounds like this is what the situation is. I have a box. The box needs to run a purpose-built application, in this case, OBS. And OBS has a bunch of things that I have to do to it after the fact, like setting up my yeah. scenes and, and doing those sorts of things, making those connections. Now, uh, when, when you're plugging this stuff into OBS, how does that work? Is it just dropping files into a directory? Is it something like, do you have to click around in the UI? Like what happens with these? Yeah, there's two ways to do it. One is, so the Ansible way is what it's doing is it's unpacking a bunch of files and putting them back into the directories where OBS expects to find them. And that works. There is a UI option for exporting, I think is XML or something like that. Um, and then you'd have to manually move your assets separately. If you're obviously, if you're just copying the folder, you can copy the whole kit and caboodle and, you know, tar.gz it up. So there's a couple of ways to skin this cat. We'll talk about the, the more Linux admin style of doing this. And we'll talk about how to interface specifically with OBS because there are different ways. Okay. So, um, in the Linux administration standpoint, what I'm thinking is, okay, I have a box. I need to make sure that nobody tinkers with this box because it needs to do a thing and I'm making it an appliance. So 
ultimately you can have a machine that boots up read only, or you can do a, an immutable operating system. Or if you're a masochist, you might even check out something that, um, does the build every time, you know, uh, Folks over at the Jupiter Broadcasting like to talk about their their favorite operating system, NixOS, which can uh, help with this solution. But the point is, is you want to have an operating system with the application come up that can't be tinkered with. That is step one. Okay. Uh, how you might do that? That's that's up to you. Like I said. I might go the immutable operating system way. You could also do Valve's approach, which is essentially they they just make the operating system read only. So they take a normal operating system, just make the hard drive read only, and that will accomplish the same level of, of security for you. W once you've got that, you make an image out of that, however you're going to do that. Mm -hmm. And then you pull your assets down. So in the past, what I have done in this situation is I build a startup script that runs every time the machine boots and it checks its local directory for whatever files. So if you've got tons of files, you obviously don't want to check that, but you drop a text file that is completely not supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. And if that text file is there, it means that you've pulled this, this information down previously. If it's gigs and gigs of data, then I wouldn't risk doing like an rsync because you, that's a lot of stress on the system. If it's like a couple hundred megs of data, I might just do an rsync anyways, just to make sure I have everything. Mm -hmm. Or if you've stored it on a web endpoint, you know, then you would pull it down. So the startup script checks, do I have my stuff? If I don't go fetch it from a known endpoint and put it in place. Between those that kind of, between sorry, those two, ahead. well, no, 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 I'm just, I'm, I'm curious. So I, I just looked, so the largest file, uh, all, all of the streaming dependencies together combined are 16.2 megs. Oh, then I would absolutely rsync that down. Um, ideally I would, I would actually not tar them up because unless, unless the situation is I untar it literally in a directory and it just explodes in that directory. Right. But if you've got to move a bunch of files into different directories, I would probably just make sure that I can pull down the individual files and splat them where they need to go. Okay. Um, I understand why you might want to tar it, but, but for me, I would want to pull down the files in, I really like the where idea of them. making a mount and yeah, pulling them down into where you want. Right. So, um, yeah. this is partly born from experience. I've had experience with, um, building a tarball and then some something being missing from the tarball for one reason or another. And I've absolutely had this with clients where the, they think that they've done a, a full backup and there's a tarball. And when you just kind of like do a TVF, it looks like the folder structure is there, but when you get down to it, something's missing. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> and unless you're building a super complicated um, script, that's going to interrogate things as it's being put out onto the, folder structure, it's probably better to just pull known working files with sums or whatever into the directory that they have. Tiny. Now, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Tiny in the chat room says you could use Ansible pull in a system D timer instead of a startup script. Thoughts. Would your thought there be if, if that's true, if Ansible is already installed and configured with Ansible pull and system D timer? You could, I don't know why you would, because this, the idea here is, 
I'm not giving this to a bunch of people that are likely to even know where to go tinker with these files. Right. The reason why it's a, a something that happens at boot is because um, I'm checked, like the system's been rebooted for some reason. Maybe it's a first time run. Maybe someone restarted it or whatever because something went wrong. And the first thing that people do when something goes wrong with the computer is to restart it. Mm -hmm. right? So I wouldn't want to be pulling constantly that might have unintended consequences, such as Noah's crew is updating things on the background and, oh, I just accidentally deployed this library with this thing and I didn't mean to do that because not everything had finished getting pushed up or whatever. Ah, does that make sense? It does. That bites people a lot, more than you'd, you'd imagine. So I don't like the constant pull model. It could work, but it's more likely to cause you problems and hard to track down problems. Yeah. Cause you weren't expecting it to happen per se, or you forgot that it was Ex happening. Exactly. Something changed and you forgot that the pull timer had happened or whatever it is. Um, now the, the other way to skin this cat, which you might also consider is I know that there, especially this, now this applies to OBS and, and anything specific to OBS, but you could make your own flat pack or snap of exactly everything that you wanted and then just install the flat pack and be done with it. That huh. would give you your immutable operating system and then a flat pack on top of it that literally just has everything baked into it that you need and it will deploy. And that gives you some level of confidence that you can seamlessly deploy this because you put it in a flat pack and you can just literally grab the flat pack and put it on your system and see what they're seeing in theory. I'm, I have to go explore this a little bit. I, I really like the idea. I, it's been, it's been a huge blessing and, and, and fun. This is something I've wanted to do for a long time. I, I I've always liked the idea of playing with video, but it's just, it's expensive to do right. It requires a lot of tinkering and buying the exact right hardware and getting the right, right thing. And frankly, it takes open source getting up to par. And so I think it, I, I got to, I got to get in on this on the very early onset of video in open source. Like when it was just like, I remember when OBS first came out and you couldn't, they didn't have hotkey switching. So you could switch the scenes, but you had to scroll through the ones or you had to take your mouse and click, you know, scroll up and down and click on the on the scene that you wanted. But it worked. And that was cool. And to see how far to go from that to de facto industry standard, everybody and their uncle knows what OBS now and probably uses it in like what, six years, seven years. I mean, it's just it's crazy. It's crazy to watch. It's so cool. So it's been a really, really, really cool project. Huge thanks to BitFocus with BitFocus Companion making the Stream Deck a completely uh, open device that you can use for and just make it do all sorts of crazy cool things. OBS for producing the software that actually generates the stream. Matrix for the chat room and Element for providing federated chat. Owncast for the final delivery. Man, once we got Owncast tweaked, it is a stellar experience. Tells you how many people are watching the stream. Has the the, the embedded chat just like you would if you were on Twitch or YouTube or whatever else. And, but it's your thing. You Once it's set up, like they own that thing and nobody can ever pull the rug out from under them. All thanks to a bunch of open source software. Now I have a question for you, the audience. There was a 
commit a, a, a commit request to the OBS project that came to my attention. And it was a request to add a streaming endpoint provider, kick.com, which I understand has a lot of, how should we say, mature oriented content. The comments in the discussion for the pull request are largely people going back and forth about kick.com does not meet our code of conduct does not subscribe to our value system. And so we're not going to add it into the streaming provider list in the end. And this is worth just getting out of the way right up front. They only accept service edition requests from an official representative of the platform. And the person that submitted this never actually came out and said, yes, I work for kick.com and we're officially asking you. So regardless, this should be closed per their own policy, per their own guidelines. And frankly, per being a decent, normal human being, don't include people's thing inside of your thing. If So I agree with their stance there, but I guess my question is, and I'm interested in your thoughts, Steve, first of all, are these guys playing gatekeeper? And if so, should free and open source software do that? Should free and open source software, should it be in free of entanglement as to who can use it and who can't Russia, kick.com, whatever. I I fall down on on the extreme side of freedom on this one. Like, I don't think you. I understand what what their point is in terms of hey, we are accepting code into the code base, and you know we don't like this because we don't want to be associated with those people. I don't. When you're a big open source project like this, I don't think that it is your job to to play gatekeeper on these sorts of things. I think that you could disqualify things based on the quality of code, um, based on the fact that you don't want to add a feature, but this is not adding a feature. This is just simply using the feature to support a specific endpoint for a feature that already exists. So I find I have a real hard time with this. Like I, I sympathize and I empathize because I'm thinking about if I was in the situation and someone was trying to force me to support a thing that I didn't agree with, how would I feel about that? Yeah. I, I definitely empathize with that, but the whole, the whole movement of free software was based on the idea that you can run the software on your computer and no one can tell you what you can and can't do with your software mm -hmm. and that, you know, it shouldn't be up to a gatekeeper to decide what the software can do on your computer. Now, having said that, just briefly, uh, it doesn't mean that they're removing the technical capability for you to in download and install a third-party plugin, which does the exact same thing. Not only that, it actually, it goes further than that. So the, it, you don't have to have a streaming endpoint you don't need it to be on the provider list, right? Like you can click other. I think for the vast majority of time I used OBS, it was, it, first of all, it started with just other, like you had to know the RTMP address. And if you're a real geek, that should be no problem. But then over time they had like YouTube and Twitch. And frankly, I always saw that as clutter. I was like, what, why would you pre-populate a bunch of things I might want to use? Just give me the field, every streaming provider on God's green earth, you say configure streaming software will tell you click on RTMP or RTSP, copy this link. Here's your stream key, paste that in. Just do that. You don't have to have a list for other things. So this is a nicety. It's a on top of everything else. You can stream to kick.com. Anybody can do that. They're just not going to give you the, the easy button to do it. And I don't know, does that, 
Does that change it for you at all? But I, I definitely, I say all that to say I definitely agree with aspects of what you're saying. Hmm. I'm not really sure, honestly. I don't like this from a standpoint of I don't think you should be discluding them, but since they're not actively blocking it, it makes it a little bit. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I'm not convinced. Let us know what you think live at Ask Noah Show or 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of January 7th, 2024, here's the Linux and open source news. Solus Linux 4.5 has been released with AMD RockM support and Pipewire. MKV Toolnix has released version 82. The ebook reader Calibre has released version 7.3. Vim has released version 9.1. Firewall D 2.1 is out. And Command Line GL has also released version 2.1. Linux Mint 21.3 Edge has announced that they will be moving away from the default 5.5 LTS kernel to the Linux 6.5 kernel to address hardware issues. Speaking of the Linux kernel, the Linux kernel team has released version 6.7. And GNU Linux Libre 6.7 kernel is also available for those that want the kernel without binary blobs. The Rust toolchain upgrade has been submitted for Linux 6.8. Red Hat has been evaluating the x86-64 v3 requirement for RHEL 10. And in hardware news, System 76's new Linux workstation has been updated with AMD Threadripper CPUs. I'm here with Daniel Schaefer. He is a firmware and software engineer for Framework, the open repairable laptop. Daniel, welcome into the program. Hi, welcome. I, I wanted to start with this. Um, can you tell me the story of how Framework got started? Why did you decide to build an open repairable laptop? Well, I joined Framework two years into it. And um, we got started by engineers who have worked at various companies, uh, even Apple. And they were just frustrated by how things were going, how things changed, how things became less open and less repairable. Right, and they wanted to make better hardware and change the industry. How did you get involved with Framework, or what was your draw to say, I want to go work and engineer on a product that's built for open and repairable laptops? Well, I guess it's everybody's, every engineer's dream to have um, hardware like this. The CEO got in contact with me and uh, asked me to if I was interested to join. And of course, I was really excited and honored that he would ask me. One of the things that really stood out to me, Daniel, I was listening to your excellent presentation today and I just, I couldn't help but laugh. You're in the middle of your presentation and you disassembled your laptop. You took the keyboard off of the laptop. Can you talk a little bit about the confidence you have in the connectors, in the robustness of the laptop that you're comfortable while in the middle of a demo, while you're using the laptop to present, to, to disassemble it that way? Because uh, I have disassembled the laptop lots of times. We do it often. Um, sometimes at the office we have competitions to see who is the fastest to swap out the mainboard. I know it always gets people excited. Anytime I open my laptop at a conference like this, people just start swarming in and want to see what's going on. So I thought, especially if I do it during the talk with my machine that I do the talk on, um, people are going to be excited about it. it. It drives the point home. Can I ask a little bit about the kill switches? How do they work? And are you aware of any way for them to be rem remotely bypassed? Can people rely on those switches uh, for their safety and security? Yeah, they can be relied on because uh, they have a sensor that to, to detect the state of the switch. If the sensor is, or like if the switch is in the off position, 
the camera and the microphone is electrically disconnected. So if you turn the switch off, it disappears from the operating system. So there's not really any way to bypass it remotely. Can you talk a little bit about the biggest difference between the 13-inch and the upcoming 16-inch? What are the differences between those two models, and what led to the creation of the 16-inch? Well, the biggest difference is, of course, the form factor. So they're incompatible in that way. Now we have a separate series of laptops. Yeah, bigger screen. And in general, it's supposed to be more powerful, especially for gaming with the dedicated GPU. And uh, we took the opportunity of the extra space to make it even more modular. The expansion cards increased from 46. And of course, uh, what's really exciting is that the input deck is, is modular, that you can hot swap the keyboard, the touchpad, move them around, have a, have a numpad or even an LED matrix. Because it's just USB devices and very simple ones, it's also super easy for tinkerers to build their own modules. What work is left on the 16? I know you brought a prototype here. I had a chance to get my hands on it. It's awesome. I also particularly like the Type-C port at the back uh, for charging, especially when you have a larger form factor. I think that makes a lot of sense. I really appreciate that. What's What work is left, and do you see any challenges with it? Um, it works already. We're already dogfooding it, using it internally in the company. But there's still lots of uh, rough edges, especially also because uh, because the SOC is new. Lots of work done that has to be done from AMD. We tweaked the hardware design over the last couple of months to, because it's so flexible um, <laughs> and such a new design, uh, we had a couple of challenges. But I think it's mostly, um, mostly the software. It needs to be more mature. For the modules, they connect over Type-C. Is there any sort of a bandwidth limitation? Are those modules connecting into the PCI bus? Are they going through a USB bus? And if they're going through a USB bus, is there any sort of concern that, you know, now you're channeling your Ethernet and or your display through that USB bus? Does that provide any sort of limitation? At least on the Intel, uh, Intel boards, they all support the high speed of uh, USB 4, so there's no limitation at all. But on AMD platforms, because of SOC limitations, on the 13-inch, only three of them support full speed, and one of them uh, only USB 3. And because the 16-inch the has six ports, also, again, only three support uh, full speed USB 4. Do you have, I know there's been support from Cooler Master to manufacture a case to repurpose the motherboard as a desktop. Have you seen any efforts to come up with third-party modules uh, for these laptops? Lots of people in the community have built various kinds of modules as, uh, as hobby projects. For example, this week I saw somebody made a, uh, a joystick module that sticks out of the laptop and um, they said they want to make like a sort of Steam Deck out of, out of the framework laptop. Yeah, lots of people have made other mainboard cases, turned into tablets or all-in-one PC. We haven't seen any commercialized modules yet, but I guess because we're still very young as a company, people need to be confident that people keep buying our laptops so that they can make uh, third-party modules. And you manufacture, or excuse me, you publish the schematics so that anybody can design a module, anybody could produce one, and that's indeed how the community is doing this. Is that right? Yes, we publish uh, enough details about we don't publish the full schematics of the main board but um, everything that you need to to uh, make enclosures for the main board for other mod for other for the display for everything so all of the interfaces are available yeah everything really you need to to make your own replacements for any parts really 
Daniel Schaefer, software engineer and firmware engineer for Framework. We appreciate the time, sir. We'll catch up with you again soon. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I found what could be the coolest terminal emulator I've ever used, or it could be the worst thing for a new user. I'll let you decide. It's called Wave. You can learn more at waveterm.dev. Now, here's the thing, Steve. What do you think about a terminal emulator that's designed for people that don't want to be in front of a command line interface? Hmm. Isn't that kind of paradoxical? You would think so. And so this actually literally erupted, well, it almost erupted into a bloodbath at Ultaspeed. I brought this up and I it's a, a terminal emulator designed for Gen Z. So here's what I like about it. It puts each command that it runs into an output box. So it's easily graphically separated what the command is and what it did. There's also a GUI to explore things. So you can click on history to see what commands you've run in the history to rerun a command. You have the ability to minimize if it has a bunch of text output and you don't want that one, but you do want something in the middle. You have the output to choose how the text is presented to you. Uh, you have the ability to move it to the sidebar to keep something pinned or static while you work on a different terminal. The downside is I think if you really want to master the CLI, you need to start with the basics and work your way up. And so that was kind of, what I was hearing from from the more experienced Linux users, um, you're looking for the lowest common denominator, and that's never going to be an esoteric piece of software. And lastly, the thing that kind of stuck out to me is kind of weird. There's no installer. It's a zip file. So if you're really catering to the lowest common denominator of entry-level users, I question how effective having them extract a zip file and figure out what the executable is. Either way, you should check it out. Help, help me decide if you think this is a really cool thing for you, new users or a bit overblown. Waveterm.dev. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. AskNoahShow.com. Noah